0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. As students in England pick up their A-level results, we'll look at why the government performed a last-minute change in the grading system, panicked and chaotic, headteachers have called it. What lessons need to be learned by the government, that is. Then we'll go from chalk to cheese and take a look at why Stilton has stalled the trade deal with Japan that the UK so badly wants. A new IFG paper this week says the government has badly weakened the UK's negotiating hand. We'll talk about why and what can be done. We're going to look, too, at the UK's dubious distinction of having one of the worst recessions among European economies, or so the numbers suggest, and whether the Chancellor should extend the furlough scheme, a big subject which we'll be returning to in a special podcast soon. And as a final thought, as Boris Johnson sets out to go camping in Scotland and politicians bombard their followers with images of their staycations, we'll muse on what happens to government when Prime Minister's away and why things don't always go according to plan. Well, I've got a terrific panel to discuss all of this. Alex Thomas, who leads our work on the civil services in the virtual studio. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. So is Giles Wilkes, Senior Fellow at the Institute. Hi, Bronwyn. Well done. Getting back from Croatia. Thank you. And I'm delighted to be joined by Raphael Baer, columnist at The Guardian.
1: Hi there. Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Let's start with A-levels. As we record this podcast, students are picking up their grades, but just 48 hours ago, the Department for Education announced a triple lock, meaning results would be the highest of the grades that teachers had estimated for students, or their mock exams, if they took those, or an optional written exam in the autumn, if they weren't happy with the other two. And this was a last-minute change, following the outcry in Scotland after students' grades were based on a moderating system, which the Scottish government then dumped in favour of teachers' grades. Well, so let's grade the the government's handling of this. Raphael, is Nicola Sturgeon determining how A-levels are marked in England?
1: Uh, I certainly think uh, that she has uh, salvaged a sort of political point out of her own crisis on this, uh, simply because she made the mistake that the government in Westminster, the English government, uh, the UK government, uh, was about to make uh, in terms of not anticipating how uh, how much anger and frustration there would be about perceived unfairness uh, in the allocation of grades, uh, and then had to perform a U-turn. And I think uh, Nicholas Sturgeon uh, to, uh, saw in that at least an opportunity to disrupt what, uh, what Gavin Williamson would then have to do. Uh, in England, but but the reality is, it's just different flavors of the same mess. It, it, it's bad. it's Sturgeon's worst blunder, really, politically for a very long time, possibly ever. Uh, and it's just another terrible blunder by Gavin Williamson, who I think, uh, separate to to other problems that the government has on this, is really looking like quite a kind of a calamity minister at quite a difficult time for the government. The, the reality is, you could have foreseen that this would be very difficult there's no perfect outcome if people don't do the exams you cannot the 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 replicate as if having done exams scenario simply doesn't exist so it was always going to be difficult but it didn't have to be a shambles and chaotic which is what's happened.
0: Giles I mean who's got it right Um, was um, Scotland right to and, and the English system right to try to um, not just take teachers' estimates, but try and take the whole context of that. You know, allowing perhaps for teachers being very optimistic about how their, their pupils um, should do. It was was or, or should they? The governments have seen um, that this was going to happen and uh, done something about it.
2: Well, um, I'll accept Raphael's caveat that there isn't a good answer here when you can't do the exams and we can all go back in time and say maybe he shouldn't have got rid of so much coursework from the system and I should also add I've got two personal interests a daughter who's had her a-level results today and a wife who works in teaching and is affected by this but I must admit looking at the thing I can't believe that the computer-based system that they were looking to use until this um u-turn and mention of the mocks was ever going to be a runner because you could work out on your fingers very quickly that the method they're using will be devilishly penalising for some really vulnerable people. I mean, people who outperform the previous year group. And in other words, a pupil who is at a struggling school who nevertheless, against the odds, gets a really good result and the teacher's really pleased with and tells them. That is the kind of pupil that, as far as I understand it, is most penalised. And I cannot believe that there wasn't just some basic political common sense saying, this will be judged by the really bad cases, and those bad cases will be straight in front of everybody the moment this happens. We can't have that system. And for it to happen in this very last-minute way and the idea of throwing mock exams in there, it feels totally chaotic, and I can't have very much sympathy at all because they must have seen this coming from March. They would have had the chance to wargame any number of different alternatives. And even if there isn't a very good one, the, the way it's come out seems to have just gotten the worst of all worlds.
0: And they've had they've had the results for a couple of weeks because universities have, have, have got them and started awarding places already and now having to storm.
2: Yeah, I think there's another sort of
1: exquisite level of injustice that's emerging in this because, as Giles said, uh, what the algorithm ne- sort of necessarily does uh, is punish outliers and and any you know, for for sort of social mobility purposes, you sort of you really want to favour the outliers, the people who outperform their cohort, possibly from very different difficult circumstances. Answers. but at the same time what that does is for schools that have a record of very high grades and so those many of those are going to be expensive private institutions uh, you're going to get leveling up of outliers who underperformed so you, as well as having some really hard-working bright kids from tough backgrounds who are going to get dragged down you're going to have some slackers from very wealthy backgrounds who are getting dragged up so uh, I, I think the, what's what's essential about what giles just said and which i agree with very much is that the it, it, there was no way of solving this or even necessarily having the bandwidth to think about the solution in March, but it's August. And and that, I think, is what politically what weighs so hard on Gavin Williamson, is how you have allowed the department to not actually work through all these various problems.
0: Right, right. I'm going to come to you in a second on the, uh, on the, uh, the, the Whitehall machinery of all, all this. But, uh, just, Giles and Raph, I mean, do you think, though, that Scotland is right to take teachers' grades? Because there is an obvious vulnerability there that teachers are going to, particularly in a year like this, look, give the best possible interpretation and then the results overall jump by 12, 14% or whatever.
1: I've thought quite hard about this in the last forty-eight hours, and also statement of interest. I'm also married to a teacher, um, so and you know that brings all sorts of biases into it. But it strikes me, having seen all the various imperfect outcomes, uh, that with the, the, with the cost of just going with the teacher-delivered grades is this hypothetical bad scenario where future employers raise a very sceptical eyebrow about results for the cohort of 2020. Uh, and possibly that there are a few too many university uh, sort of places are given and, and that the university's own algorithms of how many places to awards are a bit messed up. Uh, and then the the, the downside or, or the cost for not taking the, the teacher grades and going with the algorithm uh, is all this. The injustice that we've talked about so there's are two bad outcomes i think the former one is the, is the hit to take i just i don't really believe that in 2025 the terribly overinflated grades of the covid cohort are going to be a big thing and that has been overstated relative to the other costs. I, I agree with you unless you built into it
0: a, a, a better appeals process including more time because they could have perhaps um scavenged some more time from the, from the whole thing and allowed more you know, in, individual pupils to challenge it with their schools, the schools to challenge it with the exam uh, boards and so on.
2: But uh, I, I would strongly agree with Raph there. They've got to choose between two bad outcomes. And the, I mean, this is an unlucky cohort of, uh, of kids. I mean, notwithstanding that kids don't like doing exams, the kids that were denied this moment have had a really bad year. And the idea that you don't want to take the risk of them being over-evaluated by Future employers is kind of crazy. And one more thought on the mocks one: um, some schools are quite intelligent in using the mocks and put really harsh grades out there in order to motivate the kids for the next few months after that. And they will be wondering whether they should ever take that kind of approach again. Yeah, it's, it's 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 so random the way schools use mocks that there's going to be more arbitrariness in that than. The teacher grading method, which, as you imply, could at least with an intelligent appeal system be sharpened up and no, made. Agree.
0: I've, I've got a teenager who's taking them
1: next year, so mocks is very much on her mind. Could I add one other thing on mocks? Because they've now created this new category of a thing called a valid mock. Uh, which seems to have emerged more or less within the last twenty four hours it 's not an actual thing uh, uh, I- I- in the world of education or in any school. no one knows what it means. You can a- a sort of a go back to your mock result if it was somehow valid and just from a, a small semantic point, but it matters. there is no such thing as a valid mock by by definition it 's like saying kind of a, a genuine counterfeit a, a mock the concept sort of recuses yeah. itself from validity in some way and and it's again it 's a symptom of a department or and a secretary of state perhaps overseeing that department. That is improvising on something that you had plenty of time to rehearse.
0: Yeah, Al- Alex, take us into the Whitehall um, side of this. Why such a last-minute change? Shouldn't those things have been um, foreseeable? Uh,
3: yes, yes, and no. Uh, I, I mean, just to agree with Raphael, the, the concept of a valid mock sets my teeth on edge. But let's um, let's, let's uh, move move on beyond that. I mean, w- w- what this struck me of is it's uh, it's. It, it it feels like and it looks like from the outside a classic example where civil servants have perfectly reasonably been working up a sort of Complex uh, delivery system uh, that will kind of work or sort of begin to work in these uh, in these extraordinary times, and they've been uh, busy kind of uh, uh, drawing up papers and uh, looking at a process. Uh, and one of the things that will be foremost in their minds was we mustn't um, uh, uh, we mustn't let grades get too inflated. We must kind of preserve the integrity of the of the process. And uh, at no point did a minister, or you know, it could be a civil servant, but it would normally be a minister, apply that sort of sniff test of this is just not going to fly, this is not going to fly politically. So whether it's because ministers didn't spot it, whether it's because they weren't brought into the process early enough, or for some other reason, it feels like the um, the bureaucracy was steaming ahead. The politics was always going to be completely nightmarish, um, and it it was only as uh, Raphael Giles and Newbomman and, and have said, it was only the crystallisation moment in Scotland when. Um, uh, when everybody realised, blimey, this is this is going to be very difficult. So there's been a mad scramble in the last uh, ten days to try and uh, try and come up with a, another process that will work, which which plays into all the confusion and the communications difficulties.
0: Yeah, and and how much does uh, do, do the uh, devolved nations play into this? I mean, we've had more or less um, sort of cohesion on this, of if, if, um, you know, every part of the country going broadly a similar way towards this. But Wales had the advantage of having AS levels, which it kept. And so it's still, it's got grades from last year, which obviously gives them um, a degree more um, certainty about how well uh, pupils were doing. But do, do you see this as um, being another part of the strain of devolution?
3: I think it's, I'm not sure it's a sort of strain of devolution, but it does reflect the fact that there are some areas of government where actually um, uh, approaches are quite joined up, even when there are, Devolved matters so I used to work in defra the environment agriculture department because we'd always say you know disease don't respect doesn't respect borders um the UK or what will, uh, Great Britain at least is a single kind of biosecurity area um you would work very closely and you'd know everything that was going on in uh Wales and Scotland in particular there are other areas where devolution sort of is quite devolved I mean the the in edu- the education systems are pretty distinct uh, and you know even before devolution were, were were quite distinct so there's there's less of that that um, sort of natural engagement uh, and the uh, finding out what's going on is more through the kind of formal uh, processes than the, uh, the the normal communication with colleagues. So it's not a surprise to me that, that the systems have, uh, have have diverged. And it was only when it hit that political crisis level that people started uh, waking up to it. It's, it's another example of really confused and confusing communications from the government lockdowns, local lockdowns, um, uh, uh, various uh, uh, other issues that have gone on. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's another one to add to the list.
0: Well, we're going to have to leave the question of schools there, but not uh, for very long, I think, because we will be looking very soon at the government's determination to get children back to school in September and whether or not that comes off. So let's turn to a less noisy battle this week, but one that may last longer, even longer. The government needs to get some big trade deals signed off before January, when almost definitely the UK will be out of the transition period with the European Union. And as Liz Truss showed this week in the Japan Trade Talks, negotiating deals isn't easy. And that, says a new Institute for Government paper, could be just a taster of trade talks to come. James Kane, the lead author of that paper, joins us in the studio now. Hi, James. Hello. First, tell us about Liz Truss and Stilton.
4: Uh, Well, uh, the Japan negotiations, the UK's negotiations for a trade agreement with Japan to replace the one it currently has by virtue of the EU-Japan FTA have been going on for some time. Uh, before, we had heard a lot about cars and how the big sticking point was whether Japan would be able to export cars to the UK tariff-free uh, immediately or only in uh, in seven or eight years' time, as it's supposed to under the EU agreement. Um, but now that seems to have been supplanted by a new issue coming from the other side, uh, which is whether the UK should be able to export Stilton blue cheese to, the, uh, to, to Japan uh, tariff-free. At the moment, uh, I believe there's a, a quota under the EU agreement. Uh, and Liz Truss is pushing for completely free, uh, completely free, tariff free uh, exports to uh, remedy the UK's trade deficit in cheese, which she complained about some years ago at the Conservative Party conference.
0: So, was she right to make such a big deal of it? I mean, Stilton itself and uh, even cheese is, is not a huge part of the UK's trade.
4: No, uh, it's completely inconsequential, um, like uh, agriculture in general. Uh, it, is a very small share of the UK economy, it's not a much larger share of employment, and it's not traded very much. Um, But agricultural issues do always seem to come up towards the end of negotiations as the big issue that derails uh, everything, whether it's the question of whether Parmesan and prosciutto should be protected in Canada, or whether it's uh, Americans trying to sell uh, chicken and beef into Europe, it always seems to be these agricultural issues that come up. So uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I would agree that that Liz was sensible in pushing this, but she is at least being typical.
0: Giles, as an economist, what do you make of these um this first trade deal, if you
2: like? I, I'm frankly staggered about the cheese angle. I I, I couldn't get my head. Re- I assumed that that well, I assumed that the Financial Times had made some decimal place problem. So I then looked up how many tons of cheese we sent to Japan. No, of course the Financial Times wouldn't make a mistake like that i mean the japanese trade deal is valuable it gets us back to square one because it's where we are currently with europe in a trading arrangement with japan i'm i'm sure james can confirm but so it's good to get back there in case when we get thrown out in them at the beginning of next year we lose all of those advantages which might be not massive because japan's a long way away and economic geography wasn't abolished a few years ago so it doesn't have a absolutely vast effect immediately on our economy but so i'm amazed they could run a risk with it over something so purely symbolic particularly as liz truss's big um shout about cheese at the 2014 tory conference or something it wasn't regarded as her sort of finest defining moment it looked a little ridiculous so i'm quite surprised she wants to remind everybody about it over 102,000 pounds of um cheese
0: Yes. Uh, 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 Thanks thanks for bringing the figures into it. When you say thrown out, you mean from the EU? Because that that wouldn't be the government's description. Uh,
2: No, I I, I need to remind myself. But I think leaving the customs union and single market without a follow up trade deal is what I I should have said.
0: (laughs) Thanks very much. Rafael, what if Joe Biden wins the US presidency in November? Uh, Is it going to change the tone of us dealing with
1: them? Uh, It'll certainly change the tone to the extent that I think it will revert to a slightly more normal interaction between two states talking about trade talks. But that doesn't mean it will be a a particularly uh, an easier process. It just means it won't have that Trump level of sort of, frankly, deranged volatility that the current U.S. administration just brings to anything international and indeed domestic. I I, I certainly I mean, it, it, it matters hugely to, as it were, the sort of the self-belief and the self-image of of Brexit uh, in the minds of the people who are very enthusiastic about it, that the US trade deal is done. Uh, And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of the people who have invested that level of emotion in it, uh, the the relative ease with which you could sort of encourage Donald Trump to say loosely enthusiastic things about the idea of a UK-US trade deal Uh, they've allowed that to sort of numb their senses to just how ferociously difficult it it, it really is going to be. Uh, And ultimately, you know, that difficulty, most of it resides in Congress because, you know, whoever you're dealing with in U S trade, you know, they, they, it's a, it's a huge continent uh, and with States that have all sorts of sectoral industrial interests uh, and they will be able to dictate terms very largely to a comparatively small economy like the UK. uh, And so, at that level, all those difficulties are absolutely structural to to us uk trade relations uh, and who's in the White House doesn't make an enormous amount of difference to that. Uh, I suspect that, that one of the things that is happening in in regard to Japan is the sort of realization that on the UK government side that you need you just need some kind of emblematic sort of illusion of both of of progress but also of, of tactical victories whether it's getting more stilton in or not simply to sustain the narrative that there is an alternative to being a member of the single market and the customs union. I mean, it doesn't matter that they are ludicrously non-equivalent in terms of the benefits to the UK economy. The the, the political story of Brexit is so reliant on getting trade deals, any kind of trade deals, uh, that that level of politics is just weighing down really hard and crushing the economics more or less out of the picture.
0: Alex, do you think Whitehall's got better at doing trade deals? It's had to build up all this expertise from scratch. And we've said quite a bit over the uh, past few years about how it first, it didn't have it.
3: Yes, I do think it's got better. I mean, James can speak to this as well. So uh, I'd be interested in in his view. But um, the government the civil service recruited Crawford Falconer um, in 2017 as a lead trade negotiator, even before that. But certainly since Crawford uh, came in, uh, the government was building up a trade profession. You can't replicate the decades worth of experience that's held in the EU or in Japan or or the US. So there's a sort of <clears throat> There's a slight um, historical blindness there, I think. But the actual kind of technical people who are interested in trade are on on top of their subject and are now deeply immersed in this sort of stuff has got a lot better, where I think uh there is still a gap and we're seeing some of this play out um and this is at um civil servant and ministerial level is that sort of instinctive recognition of the uh trade-offs involved in trade uh, uh you know trade is political and membership of the eu almost put a lid on that politics uh for you know for good or ill um for uh, over 40 years and so it, it it seems to me that the um the system hasn't accommodated itself to be be, be able to, to to handle these trade-offs so in defra for example we were having all sorts of fun arguing with the department for international trade um about the the animal welfare aspects of uh, of, of trade and it just it feels like the system is not quite geared up yet to to respond to that but i'd be very interested in james's view
0: yeah, James, absolutely. Take take us into this. And you're arguing in your paper that um, the UK hasn't played its hand well in some way.
3: Um, I agree
4: entirely with Alex and for pretty much the same reasons. Um, the UK has done a lot to staff up on trade over the last, over the four years now since the IT was set up. Uh, it has got a trade department which is now Um, about, I think, 600 people in the policy bit of DIT, so excluding the people who are out in in different countries trying to flog British goods, um, which is is rather larger, in fact, than the US trade representative staff and about the same as DG Trade, uh, the Director General for Trade in the European Commission. Uh, Many of those people are highly qualified. They've made some high-profile hires like Crawford Faulkner. So I think some of the issues that were raised in the Institute's paper on trade three years ago, have now been solved. Um, The problem, as Alex was saying, is really, um, I I think it probably is more at ministerial level. Um, It is not so much that the capacity to provide advice isn't there, it's that uh, ministers have so far found it very difficult to take uh, hard, unpleasant decisions that will inevitably irritate one group or another on trade. Uh, And one example of that that we highlight uh, in the report is around this issue of uh, exports of agricultural products like the famous chlorinated chicken and hormone-treated beef that don't comply with UK standards. Uh, Now, the government we hear recently has been experimenting with various different options, some of which Alex and I will well remember, uh, around um, having potentially different tariffs on goods that comply with UK standards and goods that don't comply Other people in government want to let everything in and other people in government want to retain the complete banner that we have at the moment. So it can't come in at any tariff. Now, all of those positions are valid, but you really need to pick one of them. And in fact, you really need to have picked one of them before you started negotiations, not three rounds in.
1: Can I add another dimension to this, which is the lack of uh, experience and awareness of how this plays out politically in Parliament? Because you've got a lot of MPs, in fact, a Conservative majority built basically on a sort of broad, loose enthusiasm for Brexit that isn't very well defined. And I think a lot of those MPs haven't really played through what, what trade deals might mean in their constituencies. And in the same way that Every MP who has a district general hospital suddenly mans the barricades when the ward is going to close, regardless of what party they're a member of. You will find MPs who find local businesses being affected by exactly the issues you have just talked about, uh, whether it's agriculture or fish or uh, a factory that's suddenly going to relocate to the single market. Uh, And as you say, Britain hasn't had, the UK hasn't had an independent trade policy uh, at this level since 1970 or really ever, given the scale of globalisation that's happened since the early 1970s. And I just think a lot of MPs are going to have a real shock when they discover what uh, trade deals that they're being expected to approve of in Parliament
3: Mm -hmm. actually mean for their constituents. it's a bit like the exams the the losers are going to shout a lot louder than the winners
2: yeah i i think we're learning how great it was not having an independent trade policy because the scale (laughs) for me the biggest learning since 2016 is the extra decimal places you need to understand the significance of this in economic terms but the the extra sort of power numbers you need for the political terms it's like devilishly in the wrong, wrong quadrant for political pain versus economic gain it's so much nicer not having this in our, on our plates and having to walk through lobbies that hurt small, concentrated losers. It's ideal for sending up to some bigger, supranational body, but we've decided to grab hold of it.
0: So, James, I, I, Charles, I completely agree with you. The, um, the politics is only just beginning to touch us. James, uh, help us wrap this up then. Um, what are you going to look for in the next few months to tell you how well the UK is handling this?
4: Uh, well, one thing would be uh, more frankness from government, because if they are going to conclude those trade deals, they're going to face this political pain, and they should really be preparing people for it in advance. Um, Ultimately, to take one very crude example that everyone is talking about, either chlorine chicken is going to come into this country, or it's not. If it is going to come in, the government needs to start talking now uh, about how we need to reevaluate our food standards on a basis of sound science, and how trade agreements are worth some kinds of disagreements like that. If it's not, the government's rhetoric about a US trade deal needs to become a lot less ambitious. Because frankly, there is very little prospect of getting a trade deal with the US without making major concessions on food standards. So at the moment, the government's rhetoric uh, and even its discussions, its deliberations inside government are all saying we can have our cake and eat it, which I suppose is what you'd expect with the prime minister who made those famous comments about cake. Um, But frankly, when it comes to trade, as in many other areas of government, you can't. Uh, And so what what I would really like to see is a government that is is more open about those trade-offs.
0: Let's move now to one of the reasons that trade talks are so important, which is the recession that has now hit. Apparently one of the worst in Europe, though the, the usual, now usual, uh, debates about whether countries' figures are really comparable. There are also grounds for hope about the recovery, as other figures show, and all this is giving the Chancellor an awful lot to think about. There are calls for him to extend the furlough scheme, which is due to end of October. There's also stories about the budget in November being delayed. Giles, how bad are the figures?
2: Well, they're they're both really unsurprising and incredibly bad. So bad that you need to draw a whole new graphs for it. I mean, and which makes me suspicious in a funny way, because as we commented at the time in countless Institute for Government pamphlets and reports and blogs and things, this was a time when we actually wanted economic growth to stop and go into reverse because the health instruction was, please stop producing, please stop making services. So to a certain degree, the fall in GDP is meant to reflect the success of your, um, of your health policy, and health policy predominated at that time. So I personally, I think there's plenty to criticise in the government's response to both health and economic policy during this time, but the actual low point of the... Um, economy at that time. I wonder whether it's the most significant fact, because if you were succeeding in your sheltering at home policy, you wanted that GDP to be really, really bad at that point. So the question for me is so much more about the pace of the recovery and when people get back to some percentage w- within their January GDP. And and w- if we get that, that back there six months after Germany or France, that's the time to say, we haven't done as well. But whether we dipped 25% or 35%, I find it harder to get very exercised by, particularly as it's only over one particular month, which sets me at odds with well, most of the well, commentary out you there.
0: Ask you then whether the Chancellor should extend the furlough scheme, which is due to end in October, he says absolutely it will end in October, but obviously in a way he cannot have anticipated. We've got all kinds of local lockdowns and other constraints on people's behaviour still there.
2: I find it hard to um, drop out of the sort of commentary role in that I am absolutely convinced he wants to end it and is determined to, and it goes with his instincts and a lot of his party. So speculating on whether he should extend it or not um, is, is, is very difficult. Um, it was an immensely popular no, I mean, why scheme.
0: He will he extend it? I'm just, it just, but, it, you know, it's there in order to try and uh, preserve jobs um have a chance of coming back when there is a recovery. And obviously he wants, as he said very eloquently in the past week or so, he wants the economy to begin to change so that, that, that employers you know, do begin certainly to get rid of the jobs that are never going to come back. Um, but given we've got an awful lot of lockdowns still there, presumably there are some jobs that could come back but are still mothballed, if you like, because we're not where everyone hoped we would be by now. My
2: view is, I mean, the... Furlough makes sense both as a matter of social justice and economics when you're ordering people not to work. So, if you could design ideal policy, you would say the furlough should remain where people are being ordered around by the coronavirus health response in such a way that they're not allowed to work. But the moment you think it's actually the problem is just it's a depressed economy and not everybody can get a job in a depressed economy. The British model, which Rishi Sunak seems to want to follow, is that you send people out there to try and find work and that reallocation and so forth is ultimately best for both them and the overall economy, even though it has harsh Norman Tebbit, Thatcherite echoes to it. So I think if they could design a way where if a particular area had a concentrated lockdown, they could apply furlough schemes there without all sorts of distortion and gaming, then by all means they should do that. But um, if they think lockdown is broadly ending their next phase of their economic recovery needs to find some other use for those many billions, would be my view.
1: Raphael, do you agree? Uh, I certainly agree that there is a tension in Rishi Sunak, in the sort of person of Rishi Sunak, between uh, the, the, sort of the, the character that he is now inhabiting, which is this uh, very flexible political firefighter who will do literally anything uh, to stop a, a total calamity, uh, and actually a pretty orthodox... Uh, thatcherite young conservative of his generation who didn't become didn't go into government to become Chancellor of the Exchequer to basically put millions of people on the government payroll uh, and who as far as I can tell doesn't really have a a very clear understanding of what sort of economy he would imagine us transitioning into uh, if it turns out that the demand side is just not going to bounce back uh, to sort of where it was even in January. Um, And if I were him, I'd be worried by two things really right now. One is the number of businesses who are saying uh, this, this policy of basically paying a cash bonus for getting people off furlough back into work. Uh, isn't particularly attractive, fine, some might take it, but uh, if the real cost is a payroll l- looking, sort of reaching out onto the horizon, that's just not sustainable given how little demand there is for my business, I'm not going to take the cash. I'd rather just lay the people off. Uh, and I'm hearing that a little bit. I'd be worried if I were him. Uh, and the other one is is the, the sort of political spectre, the ghost from the past that should be haunting him, isn't so much Norman Tebbit uh, as Norman Lamont. You know, And that line in, in 1991, I think, or two, it was where he sort of found himself in parliament saying, that the unemployment was a price worth paying uh, then for, for containing I- inflation and, and controlling interest rates, but the uh, that that political perception that ultimately Tories uh, sort of feeds jobs and the human lives around them uh, into a macroeconomic machine to engineer an outcome uh, is so toxic to the party and the brand, uh, and I think uh, it's it's quite hard to see what both what policies and what presentation will get him from October into the spring of next year uh, navigating that hazard. Because I think it's ultimately, as Giles has said and has written very well, you have this big structural problem, which is normally a downturn would, would kill off some businesses that were probably not actually particularly viable anyway. Uh, And now you've some of those will be zombies staggering forward. And how do you sort of transition out of the zombie phase without having really going back up to sort of you know three million unemployed? Uh,
0: Very very difficult, Alex. Have you any thought a minute about
3: that? Yeah, uh, yeah. I I, I, I agree with what Raphael and and Jaws have said. I think the um, we've obviously we've already seen the rhetoric and the political messaging shift from. Whatever it takes to uh, we will look after you, there will be opportunities, so I think we're going to see much more uh, emphasis on you know apprenticeship schemes and other ways of supporting people back into work. I also think we're likely and this is a, a you know a reality of, of politics, even if it 's a bit cynical I think to see more um, eye catching initiatives like Eat out to Help out and other sort of things that will take up a lot of uh, column inches to distract from the uh, the underlying pain that is uh very likely to happen in the uh, in, in the economy so I think I think there'll be a lot of talk about opportunity a lot of talk about support uh, and then the question is whether that narrative um, uh, overwhelms the is, is, is strong enough to, um, to for the for the conservatives to uh, to counteract the, um, the the story of what's going on under the uh, under the water.
1: Can I just raise something else here just linking this back to the conversation we had uh, about a different topic which is uh, mm-hmm. I ask a lot of people in the Conservative Party and in government uh, about where Rishi Sunak stands on this issue of how you manage the Brexit tr- transition out of transition. I say, well, on the 31st of December. And no one knows. I mean, he's one of the very few people in government who could go into number 10 and say, uh, you know what, Prime Minister, this is the thing you absolutely have to do, uh, whatever it is, sign any deal or find some way to to finesse the transition. Um uh, no, there aren't many people who have the authority or the political capital to spend on that. He might won't necessarily want to spend that political capital, but he's got it, and it's fascinating that no one knows what he intends to do with it.
0: Giles, last thought. I mean, uh, Raphael, thank, thanks for that because I, what was going through my mind as um, as you were talking was whether he's he's got the kind of temptations that George Osborne did, young, bright, very young uh, chancellor coming in and and treating something in a way that looks, in retrospect, very, very hard edged as George Osborne's uh, treatment of austerity
2: did. Um, I I see so many differences with Osborne, partly because I don't think Osborne was ever remotely this popular. Um, I mean, he's astonishingly popular, Rishi, not only outside, but every time I speak to any official who deals with him, they're drooling. They think he's absolutely wonderful. And this is when he was chief secretary, too. He's, he's attentive, he cares about the actual outcomes of his policies, he's, um, he's just good in a meeting, which is surprisingly rare in Whitehall. Um, but on whether he's willing to do really hard-edged stuff, this is what I find really, really hard to predict, because it's so unconservative to put your face on a government policy. I mean, I, if I understand this rightly, that he's go, people are going out there saying your meal is on Rishi, this is just, I don't believe that Margaret Thatcher ever quite did that. And, um, and and so how he will react to the challenges that come with closing a £50 billion structural deficit, um, I, I just can't imagine it. He will have to be a very, very different politician. And I don't think we've had any need to see that side of him yet. So I'm sorry, but I'm really in the dark because Osborne really cleverly seemed to notice that the moment in 2009 to present that hard face had come, which was incredibly visionary of him, given how much the Conservatives were um sort of hunted around the country for talking about spending cuts in 2001, he could tell that the m- country was in the mood, but the country is not in the mood now, and there isn't an easy way of doing it.
0: And Thatcher did, I was just thinking, uh, her, uh, uh, um, get her name put on things like the milk... Uh, milk <laughs> uh.
3: oh, Council houses, <laughs> but But
0: uh, not, not, not what she intended. Just on the vision thing that you and uh, Rafael have mentioned, do you think he needs to have a vision of the, the kind of economy that Britain is, is transitioning into um, and therefore help it along with investment in, in, in the kind of picking winners way that we know governments are leery of it.
2: It's so popular in op-eds, people writing that we now need an economy that's high skilled and which retrains people into the industries of the future and you can tell that I was forced to write quite a few speeches saying all these things. We just do not have the state capacity right now to do this hands-on Scandinavian German kind of stuff and we tend to what we tend to do is see something that the Germans spend half a billion euros on and set up a pilot of our own with 15 million pounds and three years later a junior treasury official kills it because it doesn't look like it's had much impact and it's an easy saving and we do that constantly and so we don't have a, a way of getting muscular and involved in the state and and just paying everybody's wages for a few months isn't proof that we know how to do it. The, the actual active industrial strategy stuff, we've just been slowly building up. We're nowhere near enough to deliver the vision, whatever that vision is.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's a very unconservative thing to, to have a, a big vision. It's something that, that sort of the, the liberal left side of politics seems to think is absolutely essential. And then you get these people who become conservative prime ministers plainly really believing in not very much at all and doesn't seem to do them much harm to begin with, or certainly it doesn't stop them getting elected. Uh, and I think, actually, if I were in, in Rishi Sunak's position, I would be thinking, focusing much more on whether or not and by how much I want to try and change the the conservative framing around redistribution through taxation, you know, and we all know it, you you sit in the treasury and you think, as you say, there's this vast uh, structural deficit weight is going to end up way in excess of what George Osborne was dealing with in, in 2010, not way in excess, but in excess. Uh, And ultimately the levers for raising money are the sort of, are are still the, big ones are still the basic rate of income tax VAT, uh, the, these are the things that you have to think about whether or not, you, as I say, you're going to spend some of that political capital that you're sitting on if you're Rishi Sunak saying, guess what, taxes are going to have to come up.
0: Well, I'd be surprised if we didn't get some of this in November, at least get their, their musings on capital gains tax and so on, uh, even if not their big spending plans.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, my own, in terms of that budget, uh, I think, uh, again, it, what, the, what the Chancellor is going to have to do is to tread somewhere between saying, The manifesto that we ran on no longer has been incinerated by a a pandemic but some of the underlying principles that make us conservative and the reasons why people voted for us are still also sacrosanct Uh, and uh, that's pretty hard that's pretty hard to combine those things.
0: Turn finally to thoughts of the summer, the real high summer. Finally, the prime minister is headed off on a two-week holiday in Scotland, and we're going to just muse for a second on what government is like when the prime minister is hundreds of miles away. Alex, you worked in government for years. What's it like in the
3: so the, the actual answer is that through sort of May, June, July, we all say, uh, we'll get all this done over the summer. We'll actually, we'll, we'll do this over the summer. And then um, uh, either something happens or the summer turns out to be only a few weeks and lots of people are on holiday anyway. And, um, uh, and so you, you, you don't get all the stuff done that you thought you were going to get done. So that's the, that's the sort of b- boring answer. But um, it, it does obviously make a difference when Parliament's in recess. You don't have the, the questions, the urgent questions, the uh, other sort of uh, a- animating factors there and obviously if ministers are away um, while they're always in contact and it is uh, you know unusual to go uh, any length of time without without um, speaking to them or communicating with them it makes a difference when they're when they're not in the office so there's a little bit of um, uh, of, of, of relaxation there but it's what's remarkable is how often or maybe it's not but how often crises bring uh, ministers tearing back whether it was memorably Gordon Brown in 2007 who didn't need an excuse to come back to the office but the um, the floods and foot and mouth brought him immediately back, somewhat to the chagrin some of his, some of his ministers. I think well, some um, of these things are going to need work on um, over August, uh, which is all left of the summer,
0: including getting children back to school. Is is um, should we expect Gavin Williamson to keep working all the all the time?
3: Yeah, some ministers are connected. They can take decisions. They, uh, you know, civil servants are, are around. Um, it may be that some people are away, but if you're a senior civil servant, you're, you know, it's 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 not unusual for you to be uh, uh, disturbed uh, either. So, you know, government goes on. Government doesn't stop. It's those sort of superficial, uh, not superficial, but the kind of processy things, the parliamentary things, the the presence in the office, the things that that uh, don't really need to be done that probably get uh, that, 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 that get punted off. Whereas uh, critical things obviously have to continue. And the national security apparatus, the the, the coronavirus response uh, will absolutely have to continue and there'll be uh, rotors aplenty, uh, I have no doubt across uh, across Whitehall and the rest of the civil service
1: I think a lot, a lot of um, uh, a lot of it depends on, how, on the sort of level of control freakery of, of the particular minister I remember uh, someone I know who was, who was an advisor in Gordon Brown's Downing Street telling a story of how uh, when Gordon when Gordon Brown was on holiday this advisor would get a, a message at sort of 6 a.m saying uh, this needs to happen. Uh, and then a message at five past six saying, has it happened yet? Uh, you know, so it, it doesn't it really matter where he was. Um, and, the, and the other thing I would say about this is uh, traditionally also sometimes the, the this long summer break has been seen as an opportunity for the opposition to try and land some of their sort of talking points uh, and their ability to frame the narrative a little bit. That doesn't particularly seem to be happening now.
0: Yeah, because the journalists go on holiday, well, they do go on holiday, but the newspapers don't, so they're desperate for stories. So that can be quite an easy time. And Giles, you worked for Vince Cable and, and then Theresa May. I mean, were they really away when they were on holiday?
2: I mean, I think politicians, by their work style and survivorship bias, whatever, are workaholics. I don't know whether they ever really turn off. I mean, Vince managed successfully to go skiing at the same time that the tabloids were condemning the Chancellor for going skiing over... The VAT rise, which I think never failed to raise a smile to his lips. But um, otherwise, the problem with the summer holiday is that sure, the politicians go away, but there's this devilish institutional invention for wasting money called the party conference season. And normally around July, some noble strategic senior SPAD says, We need to have some great policies to announce. In September, to the two and a half thousand lobby correspondents who notice these things, and you waste a lot of time getting up some really bad policy ideas. In the case of the coalition, to be bargained against one another, so the cost is twice. Um, you could save a lot of money by banning conferences. The, I mean, well, oh,
0: the- okay, so uh, it's it's it happens. I mean, they're happening only virtually this year. Thank
1: you. I also can I point out that the one thing that if, as a lobby correspondent who's, who's been to many, many party conferences, the one thing that definitely happens by the end of attending a sequence of party conferences is everyone is ill because all the, sort of, the, the you know, old fashioned viruses used to just sort of circulate relentlessly around those airless conference centres full of people who aren't getting enough sleep and they're eating junk food all the time. So uh, it doesn't at all. It strikes me as enormously sensible that it's not happening this year. Well, with that leap
0: forward uh, for the whole political system, I'm really sorry. We're going to have to wrap it up there. We clearly could keep talking about summer holidays for a very long time. That's going to be the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Alex Thomas, James Kane, Giles Wilkes, and Raphael Baer. Great to have you with us. And thank you all for listening at home. If you want to hear more of our work, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. You can listen at Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify wherever you get your podcast, and do leave us a review. It'll make us happy, no matter what you say. You can find all of our work, including James's terrific paper, at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk.